Hey guys, welcome back to the Life on Leverage podcast. I'm your co-host, Tyler Sells, and with me, as always, is your other co-host, Sam Johnson. Today, we are sitting down with one of our adjunct professors at the King's College, Michael Hernick. Professor Hernick is currently a managing director at Deer Isle Group. Earlier in his career, he received his MBA from Yale, then worked at Lehman Brothers for multiple years as a senior vice president in investment banking M&A. He was able to work on the initial public offerings for both J.Crew and Blackstone. In this interview, we talk about investment banking, his career, and the insights he learned along the way, and as always, advice for those of us looking to break into the industry. Stick around till later to hear some crazy stories from his days at Lehman, as well as the value of MBAs and how they can be great for a transition in your career path. Let's get right into it. Thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. We are looking forward to talking. We've got a couple of questions for you, but let's get started just with a little bit of an intro that we've done on a couple of our podcasts. What is one of your favorite neighborhoods in New York City? Sure. I, I think my favorite neighborhood is Hell's Kitchen. It's, um, I lived in a bunch of different areas in the city. That's where I spent the most time. It, it, to me, it feels most like, like what New York actually is. So you know, Midtown West, right by Times Square and the theater district and lots of great restaurants and, uh, you know, just kind of close to everything. It feels like you're in the middle of everything. So hmm. that's, that's my favorite spot. That's awesome. I've, I don't think I've spent much time there. So I'll have to add that to my list. What is one of your favorite restaurants in the city? Sure. This was a, this is a kind of a trickier one because there's, there's a lot of good restaurants, but I think, um, I think I'll vote with for Blue Hill, which is, it's hmm. a tiny little Michelin star restaurant in the West village. And they own a farm up in Westchester. So everything's farm to table and it's all, um, kind of original, different menus every time. It's a great, great little spot. So I, uh, I've been there a bunch of times. I really enjoy that one. Hmm. I've not heard of that one either. So that's another, this is one of the great things I've been doing this. We've heard probably eight new restaurants, Sam. So yeah. <laughs> lots great, of new places uh, to try. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so kind of transitioning into some stuff about the markets, financial industry. We, this is not for investing advice, but what is one company or industry or something that you are long on right now that you see being successful moving forward? Sure. Yeah. You know, the one, um, the one stock that I'm excited about right now is it's a, it's one I would never recommend to anybody. It's a, uh, it's a tiny little biotech company. They have a liver cancer drug in phase three trials. They have no revenue, no operations, no nothing. All they're doing is putting this drug through trials mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, in mid-July, it's either going to be approved or not approved. So it's kind of like buying a lottery ticket almost. It's either, it's very binary. It's either going to succeed and go on and be a company or it's not. Um, so, you know, I, I just, I put a little bit of money in it and it'll be fun to watch for the next couple of weeks and we'll, we'll hope that it hits. And if it doesn't, hey, you know what? Life goes on and, and, and we're all good. But, uh, but if it happens, I'll, I'll feel like I was kind of part of something, you know, to help cancer patients or something like that. So it's, you know, it's got kind of a neat little, neat little story around it. That's, that's really cool. That's a, that's a new thing that we've heard. Maybe on the flip side, what's something you're not so excited about? Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know that ever, if I really have kind of a, a short, um, I wouldn't ever really do that personally. Uh, probably too conservative to go in that direction. I, I'm really very skeptical overall of the overall market, truthfully. Um, you know, it, it's been down the last couple of days, which I think makes some sense. Um, I'm just confused as to why we continue to hit new highs all the time when we have unemployment that is really high. Um, most of the, a good chunk of the economy is still shut down and 
you know, I, I am just confused by it. Nobody's out spending money. I mean, you know, everybody is hunkering down and trying not to either catch or spread this disease. And I, I think it, it should, to me, it feels like it should be a great stock pickers market. So anybody that's hedge funds should love this market. They should just be able to kind of pick and choose winners and losers and, and make money all day long. But it, it's, it hasn't been like that. The market overall is, is, is up and it's, I'm confused by it. So I'm, I'm a skeptic around where, uh, where the overall market is. Well, we've heard that uh, a time or two before we interviewed uh, Professor Gannon in our second podcast, and he had lots of the same questions specifically around monetary policy. So it'll be interesting. It's been a great, this is so cool for Sam and I as college students. We get to sit back and watch it without the threat of losing our jobs, um, but we get, to, we get to enjoy watching it all go down. So I'll hand it off to Sam to move into the next segment. Yeah, um, kind of echoing what Tyler said, Professor Gannon was very concerned about the fundamentals of the economy not mirroring the results in the stock market. Um, I would agree with that. I think that sounds like a wise observation. Yeah, it definitely is something to, to put some thought into for sure. Uh, kind of moving more into uh, you specifically, could you give us a quick summary of your story and your career path? Sure. Yeah. I guess, it, you know, if we go back to college, I went to, I went to undergrad at, um, University of Calgary up in Canada, which is, it's a, it's a big school, but, you know, definitely not on really on the radar screen for anything or anyone in, in New York or New York city. But, um, you know, I went into college, didn't have any idea what I really wanted to do. There was a guy who came to visit our school from, um, from Harvard business school and was explaining to us why we should want to go there. And he mentioned investment banking as something that you can do coming out of there. And I thought, Oh, that's maybe I should look into what this is. Um, and then I took a class on mergers and acquisitions and, and I really, I kind of, kind of fell in love with that as a, as a career path and thought this sounds like something that I can do. Um, uh, got myself really excited about that. Um, got an A in the class, which was exciting. And, um, I, I went about, I really, again, I had very little idea of how to find a job. This was way back before the internet was particularly prevalent, <laughs> dating myself a little bit. But, you know, I sent off over 100 resumes and cover letters by mail to firms in New York and Toronto um, and attempted to phone people and tried to make connections and got absolutely nowhere. I got completely skunked. Um, and then one Calgary-based, um, not a Calgary, it was actually a Toronto-based firm. It was a national firm in Canada um, with an office in Calgary posted a job at our school for an investment banking analyst. And, uh, and I got that job. So that was, that was kind of my start in, in the world. It was a, a terrific opportunity, really. I, I focused on energy investment banking, um, learned how to model, learned the language. I think a big part of you know, your first job out of school is learning the lingo. So knowing how to talk about, um, you know, how to kind of, kind of speak the finance language. And I, I really did learn that, which has proved to be very helpful as, you, uh, as, as I kind of progressed. Um, it was a great place to be. I really enjoyed my time there, but it was a small firm. There were six people in our office. Whenever I had a question about anything, I'd ask them and they'd say, that's a great question. Why don't you go figure it out and let me know what the answer is. Um, and so I learned to be very resourceful, um, which is valuable again, but um, finished up my two years there, got into Yale Business School, went there and wanted to continue in what I was doing, but wanted to use that as kind of a transition to New York City. So um, I had an opportunity to go work at uh, 
Lehman Brothers for this summer. Um, again, had a great summer there. The benefit of a bulge bracket firm and working at a large bank like that is when you ask a question, they don't say, go figure out the answer. They point you to the expert who's already there that knows the answer. So it's a real great place to learn. And I think that's really the benefit of working at a firm like that early on is you don't have to search too hard to learn things. Um, and if you have a lot of energy and dedication to learning and figuring things out, you can, you can get there. Um, so I did that for, you know, ended up joining Lehman full time, was there, uh, I spent four years doing mergers and acquisitions there. And then um, another four or five years doing equity capital markets. Um, that ended poorly, um, obviously, uh, Lehman kind of blew up. Um, from there, I went and joined a firm called MUFG, big Japanese bank. They, um, hmm. a, a friend of mine from Lehman had gone to join them. They had bought 20% of Morgan Stanley during the financial crisis. And um, prior to that, I had been unable to get a broker-dealer license in the U.S. There was all kinds of red tape. But when you buy and rescue a major financial institution, all that red tape measure seems to kind of clear up. So, so my friend went and started the capital markets business. He asked me to, to help him out with equity capital markets. Um, so I went there, and we had a great run there for, you know, for six or seven years. Wow. And I had a great time doing that. Um, left there and, and started with some some startup work. So we're for a number of smaller firms that were kind of up and coming. Um, and now uh, in addition to working at King's, which I'm happy to talk more about as well, um, I'm at a small private placement boutique um, called Isle Group, helping, uh, helping new startups raise money. Hmm. So it's been fun. Wow, that's really interesting. And a lot of great insights there, especially about starting at the firm you, you began at and the difference between that and working at a larger firm like Lehman. When did you decide to get an MBA? Was that something you always knew you wanted to do out of college? Or is there a certain point at your first job where you're like, this is what I need to kind of jumpstart to the next place? Well, so my first job was a, was a two-year contract position. So Back then, anybody that went into investment banking was a, an analyst for two years, and that was that was it. After that, you you had to decide what you wanted to do. You could go back to business school, and that was kind of the path to continue in investment banking, or you could search around and maybe transition to something else. And m many, many, many people transitioned to other things. Um, but so you know, when I finished that two years, I. I looked around and I thought, well, maybe I'd like to just kind of stay in Calgary and see what the other opportunities are. And I didn't really see anything compelling. So, you know, I'd, I'd applied to different business schools and thought, well, this will either, you know, open my eyes to something different that's new and exciting that I might want to do, or it'll be a good path to continue with what I'm doing. Mm. And um, it kind of was that. So it was, it was good. It was worth doing for me. Did you find that because you had worked at a smaller firm and then went to a large uh, business school like Yale, did that, did you find that that was an easier transition to get into a large firm like Lehman? Yeah, it definitely was. Um, you know, all the banks recruit out of, out of business school. Most people, I don't know if this was unique to Yale or, or not. Well, I think in business school, they try to have a diverse class. So they try to pull people from different backgrounds Um and different experiences. So a lot of the people that were probably most of the people that were interested in moving into investment banking um, out of business school at Yale had not done it before and did not have, did not speak the language, did not know all that. Mm -hmm. So they were learning everything from the beginning. And, you know, I was one of the few people that had done it before that chose to continue. Um, mm -hmm. 
there's probably a lot of reasons for that. I mean, most of the people that had done investment banking before that were at Yale were keen to go on and do something completely different. It's not uncommon at all for people to do that for two years and say, wow, I am never doing that again. Um, so a lot of people did that. But yeah, so I think it did give, kind of give me an edge that I was interested in continuing. That's helpful. Well, maybe transitioning a little bit into investment banking specifically, I think for a lot of people that could be listening to this podcast and like myself as a freshman, I just heard investment banking on a grand scale and it took me a while to understand the ins and outs and we can't get to everything, but could you break down for us, uh, you know, maybe just a couple of the different divisions within investment banking when someone says mergers and acquisitions, how is that different from leveraged finance? So the way I, the way I like to explain it is first you can start with what everybody refers to as an investment bank, right? So an investment bank um, has many different divisions um, and not all the people that work in an investment bank are investment bankers. So a traditional investment bank is divided into um, traditional investment banking, which would include industry coverage groups. So you'd have bankers that would cover every different industry. Uh, and then you have product groups within that. So you'll have um, capital markets product groups. So you'll have um, equity capital markets, debt capital markets, which, which is investment grade. You'll have leveraged finance, which is um, includes high yield capital markets as well as leveraged lending. Um, you'll have you know financial sponsors coverage, which is private equity coverage. You'll have mergers and acquisitions, which is M&A. It's basically any kind of strategic advisory. And so that's what, what is traditionally referred to as investment banking, but also at a firm like, like Bank of America or, or Goldman Sachs, you'll have this entire separate division, which is sales, trading, and research. Mm. And it's on the other side of the Chinese wall. And that includes um, you know, capital markets salespeople. So these are the folks that have relationships with um, institutional investors, so people that, that invest money. Um, you have equity research in there, which is publishes uh, research reports on public equity securities and has an opinion and a, uh, a target price, and a, you know, buy or sell rating. Um, and then you'll have traders who execute transactions for the institutional on behalf of institutions that the salespeople cover. Um, and that's those. You might also have kind of a wealth management division or you know more retail focused division within banks. Um, most investment banks also now are involved in commercial banking. So you'll have that whole piece to it. So it's, you know, one thing that I think students should be aware of is, is, you know, when they say they want to work at, Oh, I want to work at Goldman Sachs, or I want to work at bank of America, that, that can mean so many different things. You, you really need to take a look at all the different areas and be thoughtful about where exactly you want to work and exactly what interests you, at least within those kind of broad divisional mandates. Um, because in, in a lot of cases, for instance, if you reach out to somebody at, um, at, uh, at Bank of America and they work in equity research and you say, oh, I'm interested in working in investment banking, they're not allowed to communicate with anybody in investment banking um, because there's, there's a wall. They're dealing with different clients. So they are in no way able to help you or assist you with what you're trying to do. Um, so it's, it really helps to do a lot of kind of the research and around what area interests you and why it interests you and where you want to be before you, before you kind of approach and speak to these firms. 
what was the M&A like? What was uh, your interest in it? Where did that come from? Sure. It, um, you know, it really came from this, from, as I mentioned, the class that I took, I think what I, what I liked about it was that it's very strategic and it's very high level. So you're dealing with, um, you're dealing with kind of the highest level of management at every client company that you're working with. When, when a CEO decides that he wants to acquire another company, it has real meaningful long-term implications mm. for him and for his job. Um, it's easy. It's e in a lot of ways, it's easier to do that as a banker because once the deal's done as a banker, you're advising him, you go away. And then the management need, team needs to go in and execute in order to deliver on what they've promised their shareholders when they made this acquisition. Mm. And, um, you know, what I found and what I really enjoyed was kind of working through those issues with management and, and the thought process behind why it makes sense to buy this company, how you're going to finance it, and how you're going to make this successful. It's just like really fascinating stuff. It's, it's, it's more than finance. It's, it's business, it's strategy. It's, it's really interesting. And when you're doing that at a bulge bracket firm, you're, you're doing it with kind of the largest companies in the world. And you're, you're really interacting with people that are, are kind of very influential in society in general. It, it's, it can be really, really interesting stuff. Well, maybe, you know, on a little bit of a more technical level, kind of moving off of that, what was it like working on an IPO? Sure. Yeah. Great question. Uh, you know, M&A and, and equity capital markets IPOs are, are, are very different. Um, you know, when I, when I talked about M&A and how interesting that was, it, it is interesting, but you're also dealing with people that are very, very nervous, right? Mm -hmm. So, before a CEO makes a decision to buy a company, he has to really like give himself a gut check because you can really, you can make a lot of mistakes there. Things can go wrong. When you're dealing with the CEO of a company that's going public, it's the most exciting moment in his career. This is like the penultimate. This is when, okay, all of the hard work that I've done as a founder over the last X number of years to grow and build this company, all the equity and stock that I've given to all of my employees, um, who've been with me all this time to help build and grow the company is all finally going to be realized with this public listing and, and, um, and public offering. I'm going to go ring the bell at the NYSE. This is going to be like, it's going to be amazing. So the people you're working with are truly excited to talk to you. And uh, the feeling of that is very, very different. Hmm. Um, you know, as far as technically what you're involved in, um, you know, there's the, there's the initial bake-off process where you go out and pitch to win the business. That's always exciting. You're pitching against other banks and you go in and, and meet with the board. And there's always a big team of people that come in to do that. Um, I always, I always tell, like to tell the story. I, one of the deals I pitched was the IPO of J crew, which is interesting since they just filed the bankruptcy. Um, but you know, when we, when we went into that pitch, we had, there was probably 30 of us from, from Lehman that went in to do that all wearing khakis and J crew shirts. So it was, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, it was cheesy, but, uh, but, but kind of fun. Um, and you know, so, so we went in, we win the business, then you have to do conduct a lot of due diligence. So you spend a lot of time meeting with management, asking questions, learning everything you possibly can, because you need to disclose every single material fact about that company within the prospectus. And as the banker on the deal, I mean, I wrote most of several prospectuses myself. Mm -hmm. Um, and you need to be able to do that. Uh, if you're doing IPO for a, an, an oil company, you'll go out in the field and look at oil wells, um, mm. or, or you'll go on a tour of a fancy factory or 
you know, whatever it means. That's, that's going to be a fun part of it. And then when it's time to market, you go out on the road and you get to fly around in a private jet to visit investors over two weeks um, and hear their reaction and, and how they, what they think of the business and whether it sells. And it's a, it's a really, really fun process. Could you tell us a little bit, how has that industry specifically changed over the past 15 to 20 years? Has it, has it roughly stayed the same? You know, I've talked to some people that said that while so much of finance has changed due to technology and innovation, the advisory side of the business will primarily stay the same. What are your thoughts? Well, I think there's always going to be a need for advisory, right? So M&A, it's hard for me to imagine that being fully disintermediated in any way by technology. I mean, you definitely, you'll always need, there's so many facets to it, right? You've got legal tax, accounting, finance, um, strategy, uh, regulatory, like mm. the number of pieces and the amount of expertise that's needed to advise on and properly execute an M&A deal. It's hard, you know, technology can help with that, but it's never going to really disintermediate to the point that fees really decline. Um, on the capital market side, that's been, that has been, has changed a lot and continues to change a lot. Um, and what you've, you've really seen fees in that space as a result compress and come down. And um, that's, I think, going to continue to happen. But yeah, I, I, on the M&A side, I, I kind of agree. I mean, it's, it's hard for me to see that disappearing. I just, I just don't see that. Um, whereas other things, you know, IPOs in particular, right? So you've got, you know, people are doing just direct listings now. Um, the IPO market's been hurting for a while. Is, is it going to continue to hurt? Maybe. I think it's going to keep getting squeezed. Hmm. What was one of your favorite deals or one of the most interesting deals that you worked on? Um, Hmm. Well, there, there's, I can talk about a couple. I worked on the IPO Blackstone group, which was, was a big one. It was interesting. There was only, um, basically everybody was on that deal except for, except for Goldman Sachs. They were the only bank, the only large bank that was not part of the, the Blackstone IPO. And the reason for that is that Goldman has, has their own large private equity firm, so fund associate with them. So Blackstone viewed them as a competitor and said, we're not going to have you on our IPO. So we had everybody else. Um, we were, it was very confidential. Everybody had to sign a, uh, a confidentiality agreement. There was only five people in all of Lehman brothers that were aware that the Blackstone IPO was happening. Um, oh. One of them was our, was the CEO Dick fold. Um, and I was, I was part of that group as well. So it was exciting to be part of something that was so highly confidential. Wow. Um, and then before, before, we were released from confidentiality. Something leaked to the press about it, but the leak was that Goldman was leading the deal. So everybody was furious and infuriated by this because Goldman was definitely not leading that deal. And mm. the idea that they were getting positive press out of this was, was really infuriating to a lot of people. Um, but that was, that was a very fun, interesting process just to kind of be part of, you know, I, I got to meet Steve Schwartzman and a lot of, a lot of those people, which, mm. um, which was interesting. Um, you know, another deal I worked on that, that I, that I liked, that I thought was interesting that actually did not end up being a deal that we did, but it's, it's a good story. And I was kind of proud to be involved. In it. Um, it was a big, um, big Utah bank. They're actually still public to this day. 
you know, we pitched for the, for this business and we won the lead mandate on it. And this was a very competitive process. Um, the, uh, the coverage bankers that knew the CEO that kind of really originated the deal for us had been, you know, talking to him for a number of years and really built a strong relationship and our, our pitch resonated well with them. Then, you know, we were, so we were hired to do the deal. We went in and we started doing our diligence. One of the things that you do when you start a process like this is you run background checks on all of management and the board. It's just standard practice. And really anybody that's been around for a long period of time, probably it's not unusual to find something in the background checks because, you know, people go through life, things, things happen. Um, but the guy that they had hired as the CF to be the CFO of this company, his background check came up with this um, incident. He had been, he had been fired from a prior bank that he had worked for because the police had shown up at his door and there was a police report on him, which had gone public. The police report had, was in the press. It was all news. And, um, you know, without going into a ton of detail, there was basically the police showed up at his worst things like, um, you know, there were drugs and drug paraphernalia all over the place, all these wow. crazy things in this guy's house. So we, you know, we looked at his background report and we're saying, we like say, well, you know, that's, that's a problem. That's not, that's not going to work. Um, so we went back to the CEO and we said, listen, we're not, we can't, we can't, this, there was a lot of discussion about this. This went up to the kind of the highest levels of the firm about whether we could actually take this firm public with this guy, um, on it. So the story behind, you know, we went and talked to the CEO, his story was, well, listen, he was, he was arrested. Um, but he was never convicted. Now, if you look at what happened, there was, you know, the police went in and filed this report and collected all this evidence, but they did it without a warrant. And he was basically not convicted of a crime because the um, mo virtually all of the evidence was deemed to be inadmissible. Wow. Now, does that mean that this guy actually didn't do anything wrong? It does not mean that. It means he probably did something wrong, but he's not going to go to jail for it. Um, but, you know, due process is, is what it is in America. And everybody, you know, we have to believe in that. So there was a case to be made that, you know, that we should continue with the deal. Mm. Um, Lehman Brothers ultimately decided, said, no, you know, we're not, we're not going to do this. We'll, we'll, we will, we will pass. Mm. And part of us, it's very, just so you understand, it's very difficult for a bank to decide not to do a deal like that. You're giving up fees, not just on that IPO and IPO fees are huge. You're give, really giving up a revenue stream for many years after that, because there's, um, you know, every, every follow on equity and debt deal that is led after that, you will be expected to lead. Just to, it can really make your career to, to lead an IPO like that. So the, for the banker that was kind of originated this deal to give that up was, was a lot. It was, it was very hard to do. But we said, we said, we're not going to do it with the CFO. And when we did that, I thought, well, they're just going to go find a new CFO. Um, because most of the time what happens after that is, is every other bank that you would go to to lead your offering knows that Lehman decided not to do this deal. So there's taint on that deal. There, there's some reason there. So it's, you know, if I'm Morgan Stanley, why would Morgan Stanley do a deal that Lehman decided they couldn't do? Um, however, these guys that is, you know what they ended up actually finding two smaller banks to kind of take them public. And this guy is to this day, the CFO of this company, which, you know, I was proud to be proud that I was at a firm that would pass on that. I, I felt that made me feel really good about working at Lehman Brothers, but, um, Anyways, crazy story. Yeah. 
That's really interesting and, and almost inspiring to hear about even in that there is even at bigger banks that there are things that, you know, this is just too much, it's too far, we won't go there. But, um, you know, what are some of the things that you have, if you look back over investment banking, if you were to say to someone interested in mergers and acquisitions, you know, what is it that you need to be good at, passionate about? What are the things for someone who says, I want to work in M&A? What are the real follow-up details that they need to know? Yeah, I think um, I, I think you have to really be interested in, you have to have a good strategic mind. So you have to be very thoughtful about understanding strategically why M&A makes sense. You have to have a deep interest in in an in industry. And the reality is you, you, for M&A, you're probably going to be very industry focused. You need to know the ins and outs of every everything in the industry and be interested in doing that. Um, early in your career, you know, the, the joke of it is, you know, to be successful longer term in M&A, you don't, you don't really need to be strong quantitatively, but to get to the point where you, to get to that point, you need to be, you need to be very, very, very quantitatively oriented and very, mm. a very strong attention to detail. Um, because, you know, the senior bankers in mergers and acquisitions count on the junior bankers to get things right and to not have any errors in their work and not miss anything. And if mm. they start catching things in your work, you will not be doing mergers and acquisitions for very long. That will be the, the end of your career very quickly. That's helpful. Um, and I, I saw that happen to many, many people who I'm sure may have gone on to be successful in, in something else, but they just, they were not going to cut it early in their career. Hmm. What was the uh, work-life balance like while you were at Lehman? Um, it was terrible, um, to be honest. It's um, your, your life kind of becomes your work. So you spend most of your time in the office. Um, virtually all of my friends were people in the office. It was, um, it was very challenging to find time to do anything else, even you know, even moving past, you know, you could certainly, you know, after three or four years, you can certainly find, uh, you can make time for other things. Um, but it's, um, it's, there's always going to be calls on the weekend. There's always going to be things like that. And that's, it's really just a, the nature of the business, right? If you are negotiating a big merger and it's expected to be announced in the next week, well, you know, whatever conversation your, you know, your team is having with management on Monday, there's going to be, you know, you're, you're going to get calls on the weekend. It's, it's inevitable yeah. or late at night. Um, people call you when they need you They're, They pay you big fees for advisory. You're supposed to be available and um, it's expected. It's, it's, it's tough. You, you know, you can find time to be away for the weekends. You can certainly find time. You can decide, you know, as a Christian, you can say, hey, I'm, I'm going to church every Sunday and I'm going to be out on, on Sunday mornings. And people, people will respect that. Um, they, they absolutely will. But, you know, will, can you expect to get out of church and have, you know, 20 messages on your, on your, on your phone? It could happen. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could have to run back. So, yeah, it's, it's hard. Could you talk a little bit more about how your faith was impacted positive or negative because of your work? I think it was, um, you know, it's, 
it's challenging. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of efforts going on by a number of groups right now to kind of make people aware of who is a Christian kind of within different firms. Um, and there's a lot of firms that have kind of groups that will get together and kind of meet and pray and, um, you know, kind of support each other as, as Christians within large firms. You know, when I was coming up, that wasn't really the case. Um, I'm sure there was other Christians there. I, I didn't know any of them. I, I, I know them now. It's funny, interesting. Like after the fact, I'm aware of people that were there when I was there who were believers, um, but I didn't know any of them. Um, so, you know, it's challenging because, you know, I, I had just moved to New York City. I didn't really know where to go to church and church hunting in New York at the time was also hard to do. This was, you know, this was quite a, quite a while ago and finding a, finding home took, took a long time. So for me, there was a real struggle to find a community of believers um, early on at a time when truthfully, I, I really probably needed that. I mean, it was, um, it was hard being a new city with, um, you know, trying to make new friends and working all the time. Um, I wouldn't say that it challenged my faith, but, um, but there was, you know, it was, it was, it was a tough time to get through. Absolutely. Do you think that there's like unique opportunities that come about to share your faith specifically in finance? Yeah. Other people have spoken about this as well. What, you know, what happens inevitably is you work very, very long hours with, um, with people and every deal that you're working on, it's almost like you're going to war with them. Hmm. So you really get to know everybody really well. You get to know people really well and it's hard. You can't, it's, you know, if you are, you know, true to yourself and you have, you're some, you're a, kind of a man of integrity in what you do. And, you know, you don't need to be outspoken about your faith. You don't need to be out, you know, trying to convert everybody, but you're, you know, your, your faith will be obvious to people. Um, everybody will know that you're a Christian because, because they see it. Hmm. Um, and that can be kind of a good, a good check as well. On you. That, that can be helpful in a lot of ways. That's really helpful. Could you tell us a little bit about Dear Isle Group and the work that you're doing there? Sure. It's a private placement boutique. So really all, the firm's been around for about 12 years. It's, they just do basically equity private placements for um, kind of a mix of new startup companies, so businesses, as well as funds, um, or people that are trying to raise new funds, whether it's hedge funds or private equity or, you know, kind of whatever trying to kind of private capital you're trying to raise. Um, and it's been, it's been kind of interesting, you know, I, lately what I've been working on, I've been working with a couple of guys who um, have an advisory business in insurance and reinsurance. And um, we're trying to find hedge funds that are interested in a more permanent capital solution so one of the issues with for a hedge fund, a big issue for a hedge fund is, you know, you'll raise all, you know, you'll raise a $500 million fund. You'll put that money to work and every month you will, your results will be posted and investors will see how you're doing. And if you have a couple of bad months, you will have people banging on your door, wanting to withdraw money and take it out. And if you're not a cons consistently strong performer, relative to your peers or to the other 
options that hedge fund investors have out there, you will not be a hedge fund manager for very long. Mm. Um, and this is one of the issues that truthfully um, causes and results in bad behavior among hedge fund managers. It's what drags a lot of people down. There are people that have, there are Christians who've worked in the industry who will tell you that it is very, very, very difficult to be a Christian and be a successful hedge fund manager mm. at the same time. Um, because the because there's a belief that to succeed, there's a number of gray areas that you need to be comfortable operating in. And, um, and uh, you know, you probably shouldn't be comfortable in those gray areas. Mm. So what we're trying to do is work with hedge funds to create a permanent capital source for them through operating an insurance or reinsurance business, which takes away that, um, which basically means that the capital cannot be pulled or, or called away on, uh, in the event of a poor performance. It's more of a long-term money management um, business. So, you know, it's interesting to me because I think it, I think it, it's the kind of, uh, it's the kind of solution that could, if, if you, if there's kind of a Christian in the field who's done really well as an investor and operated well for a while and been successful and has the ability to raise, raise money, they could raise a source of permanent capital and then not have to deal with, um, with, uh, with some of these, some of these ethical issues down the road. Mm. That's helpful. You know, someone at one point when Sam and I did a marketplace visit, we were told to really look at your boss's 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 job down the line to see if it's something that you're interested in in particular, some of their day to day and what it really looks like for them, not just in the theoretical, but what their job actually looks like. Talk us through a little bit about your day to day as an actual executive at the, at the firm. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, interestingly, it's, it's, it's really a lot of sales at, at the end of the day. And that's, mm. I think that's what happens. You know, every job really kind of becomes that um, at some point. Right. So you, you know, any advisory role that you're in um, after you've done it for a number of times, it's all about kind of getting new clients in and then, you know, kind of the team is more involved in, in kind of helping with advisory. So it's all about kind of bringing in new, new clients. And that's, that's, um, that's a big part of, of my day um, in that business. It's really about sourcing new deals and new opportunities and making connections. And it's really where networking becomes important. You have to, you have to know lots of people to know who you can connect mm. together. And, you know, at the end of the day, longer term that, that kind of yields some, some mm. benefits for you. Well, what about, you know, as, as some as Sam and I have been thinking about our career, we kind of hear different things, but kind of coming back to your MBA, do you think for someone interested in investment banking as college students that we need to be seriously already considering getting an MBA down the line? Sure. An MBA is a great, um, great for transitions. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I think, I don't think you necessarily need to be thinking about an MBA right away. I mean, if you're a business student at King's, you're going to be learning a lot of the core, you know, finance, accounting, strategy, business kind of practices and, and uh, tools that you need to, to be conversant in that without an MBA. Um, but, you know, maybe you start out your career doing something and, you kind of learn the language of finance or learn the language of that business that you're in. And after a couple of years, you say, Hey, you know what? I, this has been, 
what I've done, I think is really valuable, but I'd like to transition into something else. I don't see another way to do that. Then an MBA is a great way to do that. Um, and that's, that's where I see the value in it. Um, it's less about even longer term. I mean, it's less about what you learn necessarily in school and more about the people that you meet, the connections that you make and the opportunities that come out of it. And I think that's the way to think of an MBA. So you, you don't, nobody, anybody that tells you that you need an MBA, I think is, I don't, I don't think that's true, right. um, but it can help. Um, moving kind of into some advice uh, for particularly non-target students like ourselves. Um, what kind of skills do you think students need to be focusing on at the moment, um, both soft and hard skills? Yeah, I mean, you know, soft and hard skills, uh, you know, the first thing I'll say is, is, you know, King students are just as smart, just as well equipped and, you know, have the same, you know, quality of education as anybody else out there. And um, really the, what's tricky about getting, you know, getting into certain firms at a King's is that at some schools there is a built-in there's a large alumni base that's at many other firms there you know the firms will kind of come to campus and introduce um, what it means to work at their firm they'll tell you all about it they'll they'll attempt to kind of recruit people and you know king's doesn't have that so what that means is that king students really need to learn how to hustle um, and how to network and how to make their you know make opportunities for themselves and that's a really valuable skill. Skill, you know, I, I kind of liken it to my own experience um, at at you know at the when I was at the University of Calgary. I mean, you really needed to. Nobody was going to hand me anything. You had to kind of go out and really find it on your own. Um, and you know, even after my first job, it was you need to really kind of figure things out. And that's there's something valuable in that. Um, you really, you really, um, you really get a lot out of it. I think the best thing that that students can do is certainly for an investment banking career, the one thing that people look at when they're looking at resumes is they want to see excellence. It, it almost doesn't matter what you do, but if you do something and it's, uh, you know, a contest or a competition or a sport, um, you know, win, um, you know, they want to, they want to hire people that are good at everything that they do. So the way they think about it is we want to hire, you know, good athletes. So they want to hire people that are, that are smart, that are hardworking, that, um, that, um, that have excelled in, in every area that they have, have jumped into because they believe that they'll, they can train you, which is true. If you go to work at a bulge bracket firm, you'll spend six months or, you know, you're not six months, but you'll spend several months in doing in-depth training mm. and they hire people with, um, you know, from liberal arts colleges with degrees in history to go, you know, do equity trading. Well, obviously that person didn't learn anything in school at equity trading, um, but they get trained up and they can be just as successful as everybody else. And how do they, why do they believe that, that person can do that? Because in every extracurricular activity that, that person did, they were excellent at it. Mm. They, they won, they were, you know, they were a champion swimmer. They were, you know, whatever it is that they did. Um, they did really well. Um, now, does it help to be really good at things in, in finance? Yeah, I think, you know, grades are, for investment banking, grades matter a lot. You, you need to do, do well in school. Um, it helps to have a demonstrated interest in finance, right? So, you know, there's lots of things at King's you can do, extracurricular, 
in finance. So do those and do them in, you know, have a leadership capacity um, in those and, and, and demonstrate that. It's basically about kind of showing commitment, hard work, and dedication to being where you are or being where you getting where you want to be. Um, is there, are there things that you think King students or other non-targets especially lack that makes it harder for us to compete against uh, target school kids? I, I think it's just connections. I think it's all, I think it's all a networking game. Um, you know, the best thing that you guys or that, you know, the King student can do is speak to people. Um, but you know, with the caveat being that if you're going to go out and network with people, you have to be extremely prepared going into all those conversations. Mm -hmm. you, you need to treat every single conversation like it's an interview and like it's somebody that can hire you and that wants to hire you and go in with energy, enthusiasm, and be prepared to convince that person that you are 100% the right person to be working at their firm or doing mm -hmm. what they're doing. Um, and that goes for conversations with both, you know, junior people and senior people. And it, what's interesting is in, in most firms, it's the junior people that are kind of the, the gatekeepers to hiring. They identify the strong candidates and the people that, that they want to work with or want to train or want to be around every day. And they often have more influence than, you know, the senior people in the firm. Hmm. Well, thank you very much for coming on the Life on Leverage podcast. It's been a pleasure. Um, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. Happy to, happy to be here. Yeah. Excited to talk. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much. Hey, guys. Just wanted to say thank you for joining us on this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Give us a follow on Instagram, Spotify, and LinkedIn at Life on Leverage podcast to stay up to date with new episodes. If you're interested in learning more about the podcast, Tyler and I are with like links to any of our socials and all of our episodes. Go check out our website, lifeonleveragepodcast.com. We also upload all kinds of resources on our website, like resume templates, helpful articles, and certifications we recommend. Feel free to reach out to us with any recommendations, questions, or requests. We love to hear feedback from our listeners on how to improve and what you guys are interested in hearing more about. Thanks again. See you next time.